welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the syndemic podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 12th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by a very special guest host, Leo Boletsky. Professor Boletsky holds a joint appointment with the Northeastern University School of Law and Bouvet College of Health Sciences. His research examines the use of law to improve health with a focus on drug policy, reducing the spread of infectious diseases and the role of the criminal justice system in shaping public health outcomes. He's a multi time twill guest and great friend of the pod. Welcome, Leo, and I think you'd better inform the listener that you haven't killed Frank and why we're sitting here actually together in a room. Well, Nick, uh, we do miss Frank, and the reason why we're sitting here is because we're here for a conference called Disease of Despair, the Role of Health Policy and Law, which tries to inject a conversation about structural determinants of health into the discussion of the various health challenges facing the United States. And we're actually live in a room with real live guests as opposed to staring into screens and hoping that the recording cloud is working. So let me start by introducing the all-star panel sitting around the table with Leo and I. First, uh, Peter Jacobson, uh, Professor Emeritus of Health Law and Policy in the Department of Health Management and Policy, University of Michigan School of Public Health, and the Director of the Center for Law, Ethics, and Health. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award in Public Health Law from the Health Law Section of the American Public Health Association in 2016. And in 2017, I was sitting right next to him when he got it, received the Jay Healy Distinguished Health Law Teacher Award from the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. Welcome, Peter. Bill Martin is a physician scientist who specialized in lung injury and repair. He's authored more than 160 research and clinical papers and was an NIH-funded researcher for 24 years. He also served as the Associate Director for Disease Prevention and Health at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute for Child Health and Human Development at the NIH. Currently, he is Dean and Professor in the College of Public Health at the Ohio State University. And thirdly, a great welcome to Ayanna Jordan, Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, where she's also affiliated with the Yale Institute of Global Health. Super welcome to you all. Leo, this panel, I think we're going to try and dive a little deeper into some of the public health responses to the uh, diseases of despair. First of all, these diseases that you chose to highlight here, how did they link together? Where did they intersect? So the diseases of despair frame comes from the work of two Princeton economists, um, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, who noticed a very concerning demographic trend uh, in the U.S. that highlighted the syndemic interaction between various what they call diseases of despair. So that includes suicide, substance use, overdose, and alcohol-related disease. And they noticed that there are specific counties in the U.S. where these diseases were working synergistically and essentially impacting the life expectancy of lower SES, lower socioeconomic status um, individuals. And 
exhibiting trajectories that were very unusual at the times of peace. You know, basically trajectories that indicated essentially that almost uh, like a contagion, an epidemic was taking place. They were actually not the first people to notice this, but they coined a term that helped to frame the discussion around the fact that support systems and social, cultural, uh, and other kinds of uh, sort of safety nets in American society are threadbare and that people are dying in uh, very concerning numbers as a result. So our goal for this conference was to try to bring this frame into the policy in law discussion, which is sorely lacking because a lot of policy responses happen kind of in a sort of knee-jerk, you know, responsive regulation framework where we're going after whatever the specific issue of the day may be, uh, whether it's opioids or guns or other issues. And, And so all of these particular elements are important, but it's also important to kind of zoom out a little bit and and talk about what are the structural underlying issues that are driving these public health problems. I think, uh, as I remember when I agreed to speak at the conference, I had to sign a piece of paper like everybody else that in every session we would use the phrase uh, wicked problem. Um, (laughs) And that certainly is is playing out so far. But I I wondered, Peter, would you like to reflect on on, on the wickedness of this and and your thoughts what sort of how, how these different sort of diseases come together and the particular challenges for public health? This is a particularly interesting conference because it really brings into focus the importance of both how we think about public health and the interaction between public health and the healthcare system. So I'd like to step back and make two points on this. The first is that these diseases of despair are not the traditional infectious diseases that public health was structured initially to deal with. For the past decade, there's been a real debate over the feasibility of health departments focusing on chronic care diseases, diseases of despair, as opposed to the typical infectious disease. So there's a clash in the model that has created all sorts of problems. I have an be in, in among those who believes that it's a natural transition and appropriate for public health to be involved in these diseases for any number of reasons that we can talk about. But I think the second part of that issue is that public health alone is simply incapable of dealing with these problems. And if we don't think about it more broadly as a collaboration across sectors, particularly medicine, healthcare delivery, then we're going to have another segmented, fragmented response to the problem. Having said that, uh, I'll put a third issue on the table, and that is work that Wendy Parmet and I are now doing, which is if you think about the intersection, the collaboration between public health and medical care, what happens to public health as we know it? Does it get folded into? In in other words, we we know that we invest much more in medical care than we do public health. There's an underinvestment in public health. In framing this as, let's call it, the integration of health and public health, I don't see how you deal with these diseases of despair without some form of integration. Do we risk what makes public health so essential for protecting the broader community's health in the process? Yeah, you bring up some really excellent points, and it makes me really reflect on kind of my role of where is the physician? 
addiction and all of mm-hmm. this, and especially as an addiction psychiatrist, so someone who really specializes in behaviors that affect one's life. And often, many of the diseases of despair fall under kind of my um, specialty. And it really pains me in this country that there isn't more um, cross collaboration because we're not really going to make any strides in solving or improving health outcomes if we don't uh, really work with uh, experts in the public health arena to figure out how how we can um, solve these problems. First, one of the things that you mentioned is, is just really brilliant. Talking about all the money that is spent on health care and not on preventative health measures and um, not getting gains in the, these diseases of despair as a result. So we know that out of the industrialized countries, we spend the most money, but yet still have the worst outcomes. So I think we have to be very honest about our inability to really even provide quality care in the structure that exists. If we can't even address kind of our public health interventions, because we know we're not doing a good job with having the kind of segmented care that exists now. The other point is even if we control, right, so we have we give everyone equal access. And there have been studies that look at, you know, through the Affordable Care Act, people having access to, to care, medical care specifically, but yet we still see disparities and results under the diseases of despair because of things that Leo mentioned, lower socioeconomic Mm -hmm. status, racial discrimination, and not effectively addressing uh, all of the issues that are really go under the umbrella of structural competency or structural determinants of health, right? And so uh, I think that in addition, we have to work with our community organizers, our social work comrades to really think about what is the space in which we can come together and really adequately address these issues because the medical field is not going to be able to do it. Um, the public health field cannot do it. And also we, the community can't do it. So we have to create spaces. And that's why I'm so excited to be here with all of you to really figure out how we might come together to, to adequately address this. And one of the things that I cannot forget to mention is really the involvement of the criminal justice system. I actually think that there's nothing uh, legal about it, but I'll just say the criminal criminal justice system because I think that plays a huge role. I do think the diseases of despair are not medical diseases in a classic sense. They are community diseases. And one of the real benefits of the Affordable Care Act is that it changed the discussion about health care and moved, it used Don Berwick's triple aim, focusing on population health and the value of care. And the reason that was so important, and it's important not only from a health care delivery perspective, but also a financial perspective. 80% of health outcomes are determined by what happens in the community, not by what happens within the doors of a health system. So I think that 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 has changed the discussion. And when we think of the diseases of despair, we have two uh, large segments of America that are communities left behind. The classic urban poor, largely African-American, Hispanic, and rural America, which has over generations now shares many of the same uh, risks for these diseases. And I would argue that although, for example, the Appalachian community in Ohio might not look at the urban poor and say, boy, that's just like us. And I don't think the urban African-American poor would look at rural white populations and say they're just like us.
process. When you start looking at why those communities have been left behind, why they are angry, why they have high risks for diseases of despairs and all sorts of bad health outcomes, Mm -hmm. they share so much. And I would argue when the revolution comes, those communities are going to come together because this has to change in our country. And we need a different model of not simply our health system, but how we support the welfare of our own people. And that goes from K through 12 to end of life care. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the overarching ideas that I'll pitch to you as a, as a point of discussion is, you know, taking the systems level approach, not system, but systems level, if one can call our healthcare system a system. But in many ways, if you look at the demographic indicators in terms of uh, morbidity, mortality, life expectancy, and, and you think of the charge of public health as maintaining the health of community, we have mismanaged the patient in the worst kind of way. Our indicators across the board are worsening. And I think it, it, it going back to Nick's point about wicked challenges, you know, I think the challenge is really how do we reverse this trend? Because it's the, the trend is, 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 is a negative one and is uh, largely, I feel like the interventions, you know, again, taking the, the medical metaphor, the interventions that we've deployed to date have not been effective. So I'd like to follow up with all of you on the sort of this issue of what I guess I'd call exceptionalism, that whenever we have a crisis, it could be Katrina, it could be uh, Ebola, it, it could be opioids. We almost always rush, and we've talked about this so many times, Leo, into sort of exceptional patchwork solutions, regulation, laws. Um, And as a health law and policy person, when I look at the healthcare system, its access pieces and its delivery pieces, I see a system that's fragmented, that has very poor care coordination very little attention paid to a real continuity of care. And it always frightens me when we have one of these patchwork solutions because, yes, it may move the needle somewhat on one of these diseases of despair, but it just adds to our our bundle of exceptionalism, of fragmentation. And I wonder if that resonates with you and whether you have policy approaches or frameworks that will sort of try and move us away from that policy disease that we seem to be in. My view of the Affordable Care Act goes beyond the AAA. One of the things that unfortunately got lost about the Affordable Care Act was that it really had robust population health initiatives throughout. You had community transformation grants. There was a structure for uh, some public health training and and, um, workforce development. There uh, also, I treated the access provision as fundamentally responding to both of the points that Jan and, and, and Bill were making. So, as I said, that got lost in translation, but it also gets lost on the ground. My department held a symposium last October on population health, and most of my grads are healthcare executives. That's our, our brand. When they talk about po- population health, they
they really mean their patient population. So there's very little movement, despite the promise of accountable care organizations, to move into the community, what you were talking about, to deal with these these determinants of health. That pressure has, if it's attenuated. It hasn't evaporated, but it's attenuated. And they're not feeling it. They're feeling, they being the healthcare administrators, are feeling the pressure of reimbursement. So the policy, the second part of your question, is that where, how do we move the system from this patient-centered focus to population health? It seems to me that we need to be putting far more pressure on payers. Why aren't the payers willing to experiment with paying for community outcomes? And if we're not, I don't see how you get there. When you've got this disparity, again, back to 98% of the budget of all healthcare dollars going to health care, patient care, and it doesn't work. There's one final point. We also have to figure out a way to deal with the distrust of government, Mm -hmm. because right now, public health departments are shackled in too many parts of the country, and that's part of the problem. You're right on the comparison between the Appalachian white and inner city black. The problem is that there's no current solution that brings them together that I've seen. If you've got one, that that would, I think, go a long way to answer Nick's question. The issue really goes to what are the moral underpinnings of this country? And I think, unfortunately, the rich um, and wealthy are in power and that dictates our policies. And until we as Americans can really think about, do we think that health is a human right, as Martin Luther King said, until we understand that there will be no gains in health overall until we really invest in our communities and prevention programs will we ever get out of this. And so, unfortunately, I am more pessimistic because I don't see the current climate changing until those that are in positions of power are feeling the effects of our our current crisis. And Kanye West, who's a famous rapper, said when uh, George W. Bush was president, this this country doesn't care about black people. It doesn't care about poor people. And I think that that unfortunately is true. I feel I'm I'm about to channel Leo and start talking about lack of solidarity. Uh, Solidarity, communitarianism is at the core of public health. We all depend on each other. Uh, In infectious disease, that's certainly true. You know, herd immunity, and that's certainly true, it appears in what are called diseases of despair. We have to support each other. Otherwise, society, you know, lack of solidarity and communitarianism is really an existential threat to society, I think. I would like to interject some optimism. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, I think we have an extraordinary new Surgeon General, Jerome Adams. Uh, He came from Indiana. He was the director of the Department of Health in Indiana under Governor Pence. And he's an extraordinary communicator. And one of his stories is in Scott County in Indiana, they had uh, a mini epidemic of HIV. Nobody was quite certain why, except it was quite apparent that it was related to intravenous opioid use. And he was in charge of of the Department of Health for Indiana. So when we had our students meet with Dr. Adams a few weeks ago, he asked, who do you think I called? And everybody thought, oh, 
the director of the, the hospital in that county or, or the director of the county department of health. And he said, no, I call the sheriff mm-hmm. because needles on the street are a risk. The sheriff knows it and he's the one who has to deal with it. He said, who do you think I call next? Oh, you call the county department of health or, you, you know, you, you, uh, and, and, and he said, no, I call the business leaders because you need the business community behind you if you're going to make major changes. And the lesson I think all of the students, including myself, heard was public health doesn't happen in isolation. Mm-hmm. It happens because you bring the community together and you bring the influencers in that community together. And in fact, they did have progress in Scott County. I believe now they have a harm reduction site where, where people can use sterile needles. It is because of communication and trust. And I think those are the two key points to our future. We have to reach out to communities that we perceive to be thinking a little bit like us, and they will be grateful for the information that we will bring to them. And it doesn't work that way. We have to first start listening to our communities. It can be the urban poor, the rural white poor in, in Ohio. And we have to first go and hear and listen to their concerns. And I think that's the core to community engagement, and it's easy to bypass it. But unless you engage the community, you engage trusted partnerships, we can't make anything in public health stick and be sustainable. I would argue that we have a Surgeon General who gets it, and I, I think we have an, a reason to be optimistic that maybe we can bring together partnerships uh, that have not been brought to the table before. I would tend to agree with that in outline. In execution, I'm not sold at all. And I'll give you exhibit A from Michigan is the Flint water crisis. And I could go on for some hours about this because it is one of the great tragedies of our time that was entirely preventable. Entirely preventable. Could it have been prevented through your trust and communication? It wasn't. For one thing, there was no trust, but the community was ignored. And continues to be ignored. In order to to kind of bring the community together, I think that there has to be an inherent trust, right? Unfortunately, what I tell people of color in this country is if you were to trust the government, I would think something was wrong with you, especially in this current political climate. So I always say it's healthy. It makes sense to have some healthy paranoia about the current government or government in general because they haven't necessarily taken care of your needs. And we see that in Tuskegee. Um, We saw that in the 60s and 70s during the heroin epidemic. We see it now with the, um, I call it the whiteification or the whitewashing of the opioid crisis. And so it's difficult to to bring um, uh, government agencies and community partners together because of the inherent um, mistrust and also no uh, data to, in a lot of these communities, to um, that outweigh some of that that distrust. Um, I just came back from, so I do research uh, looking at um, kind of non-traditional ways to provide access to communities of color uh, for substance use disorders. And I just came back from a huge conference in Bethesda for the Clinical Trials Network, which is funded through the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And it was interesting because most of the physician researchers in the room were were, uh, were white, and um, there was a, a police officer from Ohio because they've had a huge, huge spike in op- opioid overdose deaths. And he was talking about 
some of the program um, that they've been able to do in their community to to counteract the opioid overdose. And one of the things they do is they have police go out to the home where they've gotten multiple calls. And I, after he gave his presentation, I said, who are you reaching in those communities overwhelmingly? Are you reaching the, 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 the people of color? And he said, no, unfortunately, we haven't been able to. And so again, I think we're forgetting a huge community, but also traditional tactics like using the police to go out are not going to work. Okay, so- So we have to- think more creatively. Dr. Adams is quite creative. He's African-American. He has an extraordinary personal history. But I never said the word government. I don't see government as a solution. There are wonderful organizations that currently exist. And I, I think that the future is not I think government has a responsibility to fund and support and to, uh, where possible, bring people together. But communities need to have trust among themselves. And I, I think the origin of the successes that do occur in community engagement is that it starts in the community. They are given voice. People listen to them and respond and adapt. In academia, we tend to come up with an idea. And the first thing we think of in terms of community is, oh, where can we get our uh, enrollees for a clinical trial? But that's not how community engagement works. Community engagement starts with the community, asks the questions of the community, what are your needs? And you listen. It's a slower process, but I would argue it's more effective. And my hope is that as we go forward, we will have a different approach to both rural poverty and urban poverty, and that we will, in fact, develop an infrastructure that is sustainable. But but how? I agree agree with you because, but I don't see, and I I say government, you're right, but uh, oftentimes these figures or people of power are linked to the government, right? I think there are scalable partnerships, because one of the things in public health we need to do is not only develop an evidence base, we then have the challenge of we have an evidence base that something works in two or three sites. And the next question is, how do you scale that? So you can actually, and you do this in global health all the time with implementation science. But it's amazing how rarely we do implementation science in the United States. One of the big problems in public health is we have not evaluated our programs. You bet. It's a serious problem. But that goes back to funding. It does. No, and capacity. Yeah. And capacity. But we do have a mechanism for what you're talking about. It's the community health needs assessment process from the Affordable Care Act. Over time, that really is a, a policy intervention that has great potential if the parties are, in fact, going to come together and implement the results of it. So I think there, there is some reason to believe that the, there are ways of of doing it, but I, I, I do want to raise one other, ask you guys a question, and that is, are you concerned that a, a focus on diseases of despair undermines all of these other problems that black communities and rural white communities are facing? They're not all, Flint was not at heart a problem, a, a disease of despair, it was a disease of neglect. Whatever it's called or whatever we're talking about, unfortunately, 
oftentimes the the voice of the minorities gets lost. But even though all the attention is on this particular crisis right now, even now we're still losing the voice of those who are most at risk, who are have historically and presently marginalized. So I don't care what we're, what the hot topic is. Oftentimes that voice is lost because again that goes back to what are the morals and values of this country and who do we value? And unfortunately, it tends to go to heterosexual white males. And the further we get away from that demographic, whether people want to believe it or not, the less you matter. Mm -hmm. And so if we're dealing with a poor, queer, black woman of color, I mean, forget it. The diseases are problems that that person may face. And and I would argue just by sort of narrative that that is part of our healthcare system and our political system was we tend to react to crises. We never think about preventing crises. And currently the congressional focus and the billions of dollars going into to deal with the opioid crisis are focused on very important areas, recovery and treatment, access to medication-assisted treatment and having more providers certified in MAT. It's focused on naloxone distribution and, and saving lives. But there is virtually not a dollar being spent on prevention of addiction among you. There's hardly a dollar being spent on babies being born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. And and how do we prevent that effectively? And so we have to save the next generation. We not only have to save lives today, but we cannot afford another year to go by where we're not addressing our youth and how we can better prepare them Mm -hmm. for a successful life as an adult and a citizen in this country. I say amen to you. And with with harmony in the room, I call it and say that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Peter Bill and Ayanna for joining us. You can find Bill on Twitter at O-S-U-P-H-Dean. O-S-U-P-H-Dean. Ayanna is Dr. Ayanna Jordan, also on Twitter. And Peter, of course, is far too sensible to be on Twitter. <laughs> we post our show notes at twill.com. I am, of course, at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Leo, you are? At Leo Beletsky. And thank you so much for all three of you for joining us and for Nick for hosting. And Frank, we miss you. And thanks to all of you for listening. Actually, Frank, I thought Leo did really, really well. So you should be worried. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.